good morning. It's, it's good to be up here. Uh, I'm close to a ceiling fan. That's a beautiful thing. One more week of having to wear masks. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, my goodness. I think as my dad was talking and feeling even prophetically that God has an issue with misrepresentation. That's actually kind of been the theme of my messages the past little while. And honestly, uh, I'm continuing on in my series here, Weed Whacking Part 3. And uh, to be honest, I didn't want to continue because these are very academically intense messages. I do a lot of studying. It's hard. But I felt this conviction of, no, I've called you to stand. I've called you to give an answer because God does not like false teaching. He does not like that his name is being misrepresented continually. Uh, and it's getting bad all over the place, uh, especially social media-wise, where you see a lot of it. And it's costing people's potential eternity. It's turning people away from God. And so, of course, God would take that very seriously. So where I get uh, my, my title from is a parable that Jesus taught. Where he said, the kingdom of God is like a field of wheat. And um, sometimes the enemy comes in and he plants weeds amongst the wheat. Looks like the kingdom of God, but it's not. There's false teaching among the gospel truth. <clears throat> and what I've been talking about lately is this movement called progressive Christianity. It's a supposedly more evolved version of Christianity. It's filled with all sorts of false teaching. It's uh, filled with all sorts of weeds that need to be whacked. And so far we looked at um, how social justice gets skewed by this, and um, that's because of critical theory, and there's also this criticism of the Old Testament and how they take that out of context to try to make God look bad. And, um, you know, this week I just felt, again, that that's a conviction. No, it's time to stand, time to stand. And I, I was kind of brought to this section in Titus, which I'm going to read here. And, and the book of Titus is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it to a young pastor and uh, describing what kind of leader he needs to be. And so I'm just going to read it from Titus 1, 9 through 11 here. You'll see it on the screen. So he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be, be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. One of the early heresies, by the way, was a bunch of people that said you needed to become Jewish to become a Christian. That's what they're talking about here. 11, they, may be, they must be silenced because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. God takes false teaching extremely, extremely seriously. So we're going to be looking at how this movement is uh, today I'm going to look at how it's trying to undermine evangelicalism, evangelical churches. That's what we are. And I'm going to define those terms in, uh, in case you don't know what they are. And I'm going to defend against those attacks. So why have evangelical churches come under attack uh, of probably the last number of years? Well, to be honest, it comes from a massive um, blitz of American media, uh, which is a circus on its own right. Um, and basically because... Uh, Honestly, uh, evangelicals tend to vote conservative. They tend to vote Republican. And so it was kind of this media bliss that was decided if we can, if we can lower uh, that number, we can push for a more liberal government, essentially. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's actually, like, literally what they would say. Uh, it's very easy to find out that that was, um, even if they could 
get evangelicals to decrease by 2%, that would shift the election. And of course, unfortunately, the circus that is America often bleeds into the rest of the world, so that's how we've been kind of dragged into this. So it's not like we've done anything terrible or uh, changed or anything. It, it's uh, just we've become a political beach ball. And this is where progressive Christianity comes in. Because, you know, the evangelical church was getting attacked, all of a sudden this, this alternate version of Christianity would kind of weasel its way in there and say, you know what, you can come be a part of us. You know, we're a more evolved version of Christianity. We better fit with today's culture. We don't offend anybody. And what's happening is you're seeing a lot of young people jump ship, declaring themselves ex-evangelicals. And often it's young people because they don't know the Bible all that well. And they also care very, very deeply, even subconsciously, about fitting in. They're more part of, you know, the culture on social media. They feel that pressure, um, that attack against them. And so they are uh, kind of bending under that pressure. Now, once again, this movement of progressive Christianity, this different version of Christianity that's not at all really Christianity, it has some very, very dark history. Um, and I've shared some of it before, and it's, if we were to go back actually a couple hundred years, there's a philosophical movement that began in the Western world uh, called the movement of modernity, making the world modern, the Western world modern. One of the things that was really big is obviously getting into science, and we need to prove everything scientifically, and kind of moving away from the supernatural of any kind of the belief in that. And so one of the, uh, the key figures there was a guy named Charles Darwin, who came up with the theory of evolution. And he suggested that we weren't created by God after all, but in fact we just were uh, a lucky accident of science over you know, multiple billions of years it magically came to be. And then another guy, Karl Marx, was right there, and he rejoiced at Darwin's theory, and he said, oh, good, we've buried God once and for all. And you know, it was his vision that we could build this utopian society that was an atheistic, this communist utopian society. And then there was another one, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he famously declared, God is dead. This was going on in the 1800s. So an extreme pressure from the media at that time, and all these books being you know, published, and all these supposed intellectuals saying, God is dead and we don't need him. And so that put Christians kind of under the microscope, and they began to feel this pressure. And so they were faced with a choice. Either I'm going to resist what is being pushed at me via culture, or I'm going to try to accommodate it. I'm going to try to meld my faith with what is popular in culture right now. So this age is called the age of unbelief. The big shift began to happen, and people moved away from, uh, in the Western world, they moved away from Christianity and tried to embrace a world without God. If you know any of your history, people that adopted those three guys' um, philosophies actually have led to the most death in human history. A world without God is a mess. But again, there was Christians trying to syncretize, trying to combine those views and saying, uh, you know, we can have Christianity and, and go with the world. And those Christians that accommodated it, uh, the term that would be used to describe them as liberal Christians. It's not liberal like the liberal government. Liber liberal uh, meaning that there's more liberty in this Christianity in their mind. They've changed a bunch of stuff. And they believed, you know, you could be a genuine Christian, but you don't really have to have God as your ultimate authority. You don't really need to follow his commands. You know, as Christianity, it needs to constantly evolve. You know, because humans are evolving. We've been evolving, you know, for thousands of years or whatever. And, you know, we need to continually reinterpret Christianity and its meaning. 
and they believed that Christianity would, you know, it would eventually evolve into like this utopian version, this uh, the perfect version, and then Jesus would come back. So you can see there how it's blending Darwin's evolution teaching and, and Marx's utopian teaching there. And, you know, it believes that, you know, these Christians... As, as Christians, we could use our own individual reason. We could make things work for us, uh, what we thought was right and wrong. And we could use our own authority to c continually reconstruct Christianity to fit modern expectations because Christianity needs to be relevant to the modern world is what they believed in. So they begin to move away from the history of the Bible, all the history it taught, saying, no, that doesn't matter. So lots of the Old Testament starts to get thrown out. And, and, you know, they're not really focusing on Jesus' teaching or Paul's teaching, you know, the doctrine of Scripture. Instead, you know, there's this focus and, on, you know, the way Jesus lived. We just need to live like Jesus lived. We need to be a nice guy. We need to minister to the poor and stand up for the hurting and the broken. Obviously, that's not bad, but you can see here that this is a movement of subtraction. It's taking the message of the gospel and eroding it and taking away the things they don't like or that maybe the world doesn't like. So most Christians obviously chose to resist this movement of liberal Christianity. And during this phase, all sorts of, this, uh, all sorts of academic defenses of Christianity began to pop up. And it, honestly, it's amazing uh, the amount of work that was going on. And, you know, these questions were being thrown at the church like never before. People were doubting scripture, basically, that for the first time really in, in history, that it, in Christian history, that it wasn't really the word of God they were thinking. And people would stand up and defend it as God's word. And showing you know that we need to retain God and his word as our ultimate authority. Scripture is our ultimate guide to get to know God. And the cross is the center of our faith. So out of this movement of resistance is where we would get that term evangelicalism. It was a grouping of churches that bound together to fight against this movement away from God. And, and, and this combining of, of you know, some of the world's teachings with uh, some of what's in the Bible. So this is a group of Protestant churches. And they came up with a group of beliefs, basically, and said, this is the foundation of Christianity, and we will not uh, walk away from this. And so here's some foundational tenets, some, uh, some pillars of Christianity that were kind of uh, decided on at this time, basically. And so we'll just kind of whip through these here. These are foundational beliefs. Some people would call this systematic theology here. So the first one, the Bible is the word of God, meaning it's God's word. It's divinely inspired. He's the ultimate author of the Bible. Second is the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Third, uh, Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. Fourth, Jesus Christ is God. He's God among us, God with us. Five, Jesus' death on the cross atoned for all of our sin. Je Jesus died on the cross because we have sinned, and he made that all, all right. He washed away our sin on the cross. Six, Jesus rose again. Seven, salvation comes from faith in Jesus alone. I can't work my way to heaven if it, my faith or my salvation comes because I believe in Jesus and I follow him. Uh, eight, when we accept Jesus as our Lord, that we're following him, we are a new creation. God makes us new. Nine, Jesus is coming back one day. And ten, heaven and eleven, hell. Now you're looking at that, you're probably thinking, isn't that basic Christianity? Yes, yes it is. That's historic Christianity. And if you're wondering, does the Catholic Church believe that? Yes, they do. Does the Orthodox Church believe that? Yes, they do. Who doesn't believe that? Some of these people on the margins that have tried to walk away from Christianity and tried to, in their mind, modernize it and evolve it. 
So really that, that term evangelical, what we use about that is it's basically, that's our response to our theology. Because if, you know, if Jesus is God, if he died for our sins, if he's the only way to heaven, if we, you know, if we make him Lord of our life and he washes us clean of all of our past and all of the, the sin that we've got ourselves into, you know, we get to be this new creation. You know, if, if that's who Jesus is, then we need to tell people. We need to evangelize. That word evangelize, that means share the gospel. It's taken from a Greek word. We need to tell people. So that's what it means to be an evangelical. Now, I think there's a bunch of people today that are declaring themselves an ex-evangelical. I'm leaving the evangelical church. And to be a little bit mean and pointed here, I would say if there was a gun put to their head and their life was on the line, I don't think they could even define what it means to be an evangelical. And again, this movement of progressive Christianity, it basically takes away all sorts of stuff that basically anything you think society might have an issue with. So if we're looking at this list here, if we can put that back up, of the foundational tenets of Christianity here, of historic Christianity. Obviously, people do not like being called a sinner, so let's just let's move away from that. Obviously, hell, that's a big one people don't like. Or... Um, Saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That's not exactly uh, politically correct, eh? Also, they'd be against anything supernatural, like being born again, being made a new creation. Um, and also that they wouldn't believe that we should be passionately telling people about Jesus. Because, you know, uh, you're stepping on people's toes. And, of course, the big one they're against, and this is what most people really are against when they say that they're an ex-evangelical, they're moving away from, you know, the traditional Christianity, is that they do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's not God's words that he's not the ultimate author, really, of the Bible. I'll get into more of that as we go, because that's kind of the, the big thing I'm focusing on, because God's word, it's, it's the foundation of all our theology, all of our beliefs. So I'm going to focus on defending the Bible as the word of God today. And while I'm doing that, that would kind of defend evangelicalism and historic Christianity. And yes, if, in case you're wondering... This is historic Christianity because the Bible has always been seen as the word of God until a couple hundred years ago when that movement came uh, that was beginning to say we don't need God and moving away from the supernatural and stuff like that. So um, probably another issue that many people have when they're going through a bit of a faith crisis and they're moving away from things and you know, they're kind of being inundated with all sorts of stuff in the media is they don't often sit and do the research more so will sit around in their disillusionment. So if that happens to be you, lucky for you, I did the work for you. So here's a presentation on why the Bible is the word of God. So first things first here. This is basically the, uh, a main point of Christianity and what God's all about. Number one here, God wants to be known by his children. Again, this is why he takes misrepresentation so seriously and why he's so upset when people take the word of God or they, you know, they, they take God and they distort it. Because he wants to be known by his children. He wants them to know who he really is. That is his mission. That is his purpose. He wants a relationship with his children. He wants all of his children to know him. And you'll see this theme throughout the Bible continually. I'm going to whip through a bunch of scripture here. This begins the section of my message that has all sorts of scripture. Because I'm going to stand on God's authority, not my own. Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, a.k.a. put effort in, 
You will find me if I will be found by you, says the Lord. Hosea 6, verse 3. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of the rains in early spring. John 17, 3, this is a recording of Jesus praying. Jesus praying for his disciples and future people that would follow him. He's saying, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. A couple of verses later, he says, I have revealed to you the ones you gave me from the word. God has been revealed. That's what Jesus was doing, revealing God. That's his mission. And this next scripture is the beautiful foundation of evangelicalism. It's our job as Christians to be ministers of reconciliation, to reconcile people's relationship with God and say, let me introduce you to who God really is. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, your past has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The last verse is saying, because Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, and he died on our behalf. He made us perfect with God. He made us righteous with God. He's washed away everything that separates us from God. Again, because it's all about that relationship with God, all about God reconciling that relationship and us getting to know who God really is. That is God's desire. It's all throughout the Bible. That brings us to point number two. God has the power to accomplish his mission because he's all-powerful. He's God. He is perfectly capable. A major part of his plan to get people to get to know him is he made the word of God, scripture. Read this and you'll get to know him. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. I don't know if this one's on there actually because this is a new, like this came to me last night. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it will always produce fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Um, in the King James Version, Older English, it would say this is a bit of more of a famous uh, memorization of this uh, this verse here that says, my word will not return to me void. So again, so how does this all-powerful God who says that his word is, is going to do what he wants it to, how is he going to make sure of that? How is he going to ensure that scripture is going to accomplish its purpose to help reconcile people with God, to help them get to know who God really is? How is he going to do that? So I'm going to walk you through three kind of fancy theological terms here. They all start with I. This is how God ensured scripture would be the word of God. It would be his words. A, inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, thir uh, sorry, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
Other versions would say inspired by God. We'll get to that in a second. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we say that scripture is divinely inspired, you've probably heard that term. Scripture is divinely inspired. Now when we use that term, sometimes we can mess it up. Because if I think I was inspired... Like, say, I watched a hockey game, and it was amazing, and they scored last minute, and I felt inspired by watching it. That basically means that I was encouraged. There was a wind in my sails. That's not what we mean when we say divinely inspired scripturally. We're actually talking about, and what that verse said is we're talking about breathing. Specifically, breathing in the very spirit of God, the very words of God. So... When Moses and David and Isaiah and Matthew and Paul and other writers of the Bible were writing the scripture, God was basically breathing his spirit into them, his words into them. So think to expire means to breathe out, to inspire means to breathe in. So scripture itself has basically absorbed the very breath, the very words of God, the very spirit of God has been absorbed in. Uh, into the text. Yes, this is supernatural. Yes, this is a bit of a mystery to us of how that all worked. But that's how the original scriptures were, were written down. Um, you know, God didn't override the personality of the writer. He just made sure that the words that were coming out were his words. He was there as this divine supervision, this superintendent to ensure perfection. Because again, God does not want himself to be misrepresented. And this scripture, because it was the very breath of God, the very word of God, the very spirit of God, we refer to the, the, the word and it refers to itself as living and active. As it has God's Holy Spirit in it. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the second two I's here, B would be, these are fancy words, infallibility and inerrancy. So here, we have to walk through this logically here. So if the Bible is the word of God, divinely inspired, the living word, alive and active, and the author is moving through it, then it would have to reflect its creator. It would have to be like God, a reflection of him. So God is incapable of error. He is sheer perfection. He is infallible. That's what that term means. He is incapable of making a mistake. So that would mean that this process, that God would now allow a mistake to be made. When these authors are writing down what's divinely inspired, what is being God-breathed to them, it is incapable of there you know, being an, an error in that process. And so if it is incapable for God to make an error, that's how we can say, third point is that scripture is inerrant, which means without error. And, of course, people have massive issues with that, particularly these progressive Christians. And why is that? Well, it's because if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if you believe that God, God's words are written on that page, then you can't actually slice it and dice it and make it say whatever you want to say. You can't take out the parts you don't like. You can't live according to your own moral code. You can't be your own Lord. You can't call things totally fine that God calls sin. Now, there are churches out there, very marginal churches, that have a history of failing, honestly. And they don't believe the Bible is without error. And they believe that, you know, you know, because man is sinful and fallen, they couldn't have recorded God's words perfectly. 
when these authors were being spoken to by God and he was breathing through them, I think, you know, they, they would have messed it up. They would have messed it up somewhere. Now, so let's, just, let's look at this logically. If an all-powerful God can't ensure that his book is going to accomplish his purpose of getting his children to know him, and instead it got mangled up, wouldn't that mean that we in our sin are more powerful than God because he couldn't overcome our fallen nature? And that would mean that he can't actually save us. He can't save us for our sin because he's not more powerful than it. That would mean that Jesus dying on the cross really meant nothing because he couldn't do anything about our sin anyway. He couldn't overcome it to the point of making sure his scripture was right. See how bogus this is? When you begin to follow this logically, all of a sudden all of scripture, like a bunch of dominoes, starts falling apart. That's why it's pretty hard to lead a church when you believe this garbage. And this is why these churches, they basically have to throw out the concept of sin. They don't really focus on Jesus dying on the cross. No joke, they'll even say, like, he didn't die on the cross of our sin. He was executed because he was protesting. Of course, they have to throw out hell. And, you know, it's just, and all sorts of their teaching contradicts itself. It's a, it, it's a mess. It's also worth noting that this false teaching, it actually really diminishes and devalues human beings. The very pinnacle of God's creation, the apple of his eye, who he died for. If you believe that we are incapable of resisting sin, we were incapable of doing things right even with God's help, that's pretty wild. Now, why would you want to believe something like that, that you were incapable of doing things right? Human beings can't get it right. We can't ever achieve any perfection in any sort of way. Why would you want to believe that? Why? Why would you want to see yourself as being unable to overcome sin? Here's why people do that, to justify why they're wallowing in sin, why they're not changing, why they're staying like a stick in the mud, surrounded by all sorts of the evil that they have the ability to overcome, but they're saying, no, 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 I can't, can't do it, even with God's help, an all-powerful God, come on. Getting back to the Bible here, what is God himself? What is Jesus? What does he say about Scripture? Let's go to him. If there's anyone that knows anything on this topic, let's go to Jesus. God himself who walked around, walked around among us, died for our sins, lived a perfect life. Here we go, Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament here. I have come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's a pretty big guarantee saying, I will not let this word, this fulfillment of who I am, because this is, it shows how Jesus really was God, that there was all this writing that was done hundreds and even thousands of years before him, and he came and he fulfilled it, so of course, God really wants that to stay perfect and pure. And Jesus says right here, I will not let the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen, disappear until everything is accomplished. And everything being when he comes back again. So Jesus is ensuring the, in, the accuracy of the Old Testament forever with this. Luke 24, 25 through 7. Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
he makes a very bold statement uh, a few verses later in verse 44, and he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's another big one right here, John 10, 35. And you know that scripture cannot be altered. Also, you'll see Jesus quoting from Exodus 3, 6 and Matthew 22, 31, and he says this, have you not read what has been written to you by God, what has been said to you by God? Again, saying that God is the author. Now as Jesus is talking about the Gospels, what's going to be written about him, his teachings, and what's to come later, he affirms these as well. John 17, 17. And again, he's praying here. He says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. No, he's not. You'll notice continually, he doesn't say partially true, sometimes true. You know, true if you look at it sideways. True in certain contexts, true in certain ages. No, it's true. Definitively. Jesus walks around calling himself the truth. Definitively. Not partially true, not sometimes true, the truth. Again, he's referencing here now Paul, Peter, James, Jude, and the other people that are going to write the New Testament here. John 14, 26. When the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything. And he will remind you of everything I have told you. John 16, 12 through 13. There is so much more I want to tell you. But, I, but you can't bear it right now, saying there's more teaching coming here. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. So you're going to note also, when you read the story of Jesus, he's continually quoting scripture, and he's quoting it as if it has authority. And he's responding with scripture in all sorts of different circumstances and standing on, standing on its authority as God's word. Because he uses it to talk to his disciples, he uses it to talk to his critics, and he even uses it to talk to the devil himself. If Jesus says, it, it is written, and he starts walking, you know, he starts walking and talking as this is the authority of God, this is what God has written down and communicated to you, I think we can do the same thing. Also, interestingly enough, there's a bunch of the Old Testament that is criticized, especially supernatural stuff, people think it's a little bit weird. What's funny is that Jesus happened to reference pretty well every controversial story in the Old Testament that people make fun of or say never really happened. He referenced Noah, Jonah, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and Daniel. And quotes from pretty well every book in the Old Testament, affirming them. Affirming them. So literally no one defends the inerrancy of Scripture more than Jesus. No one defends that Scripture is the very word of God, the very breath of God more than Jesus himself. So either you think that Jesus is wrong about scripture, or these progressive Christians are. And I think I'm going to stick with the name that's above every other name. I think I'm going to stick with the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I'm going to stick with Team Jesus. We could continually quote from all over the Bible of how it continually says that it's truth, that God's word is truth, that his instructions are perfect. But we're just going to use a couple here. Psalm 119.60. The very essence of your words is truth, and your regulations will stand forever. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, and each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. 
They are a warning to your servant and a great reward for those who obey them. Scripture is scripture, and it's true. It says it continually. It says it's perfect continually. It says it's going to last forever continually. And even the disciples who were writing the New Testament scripture, they knew as they were writing it, this is scripture, this is God's breath coming into me and onto the page. And they, and they could recognize it in the writings of each other. As Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.18, he's quoting Luke's gospel and he calls it scripture. Peter refers to Paul's letter as scripture in 2 Peter 3, uh, 15 through 16. So honestly, if you cannot believe that God cannot make sure that his scripture is going to stand the test of time, that it's going to continue to say what he wants it to say, then you believe in a God that would have to be a complete imbecile. Because how could you serve a God whose rescue plan spanning thousands of years got completely blown up because somebody didn't pay enough attention when they were writing down scripture when he was talking to them and, and moving through them? Or that he couldn't ensure that a proper, proper record was written and kept of who he is? That is an impotent and pathetic God. And again, you can see why these churches that believe this stuff usually just eat themselves alive. Because why would you serve a God that can't do something that simple? Let me tell you something. I believe in a God who spoke all creation into existence. I believe in a God who has parted the Red Sea and tore down the walls of Jericho. That picked up Elijah in a chariot of fire. I believe in a God that helped David fight Goliath. Who stood, it, who stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I believe in a God that shut the mouths of lions and caused a whale to swallow Jonah. I believe in a God who walked among us and made the lame walk, the blind see, and cast out demons and raised people from the dead. I believe in a God that lived life without sin, died on a cross, and rose again. So I have no problem believing that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is fully capable of ensuring that his words will stand the test of time. To conclude this morning, I want to give you a very simple tool to remember and aid you in your defense of Scripture when you're having these conversations with people and saying that it's not really the Word of God. And again, I just want to warn you of why this is so grievous. is people have issues with the Word of God and the commands in it and what's deemed sin in it, and they decide, you know what, I don't think that's really sin. I think that's okay. Or this is a command I don't need to follow. And when you do that and you say that you know more than God does, you are declaring yourself God, essentially. You are declaring yourself more moral than God is. That you know more about right and wrong than he does. And that is very messed up. That is a very grievous thing to do. And that's extremely arrogant. But anyways, let's go into the simple tool here. How do you defend scripture? little acronym here for you. And uh, just for the people doing our, uh, our screen up top. You'll see the word S, or sorry, the letter S and the, and the, the letter R is going to have an extra slide uh, that are going to appear right after that. Anyway, so some of the critiques people have about the Bible here as we're concluding. You know, they say, you know, the Bible got corrupted. Even, even if you believe it was written down properly, if you can, you know, when God was moving through people, they say, well, you know, it, it didn't make it through history. It got corrupted somewhere along the way. And there's a big conspiracy theory that says, you know, you know, a few hundred years after Jesus, a bunch of priests got together and they radically changed scripture to fit their own needs. And um, if anyone ever tells you that, uh, it's a dead giveaway that they have no idea what they're talking about. Because that actually comes, that conspiracy comes right out of a fictional book called The Da Vinci Code, written in 2003. 
yet it's a very common conspiracy theory that's out there. Another criticism, they say, scripture is confusing and impossible to de derive clear meaning from. If we just, like, look at what I just went through today, that is pretty plain, pretty pointed, pretty hard to radically misinterpret. Now, there is some difficult Bible verses, and uh, especially of the end times, because we haven't got there yet. We'll probably understand it when we're there in full. You know, and there's some, there is definitely Bible verses some people disagree on a little bit of the interpretation, but that is very, very minor in the grand scheme of things. It's not foundational to Christianity. For the most part, and again, God would do this purposely, he picked, he didn't pick super, super academic, you know, people that use all sorts of fancy words. Of course, Luke is a doctor, so he's quite the academic. But again, he purposely picked regular people to write scripture for a reason, to keep it plain, keep it easy to understand. And as you'll see here, I think even that we've had copies and copies and copies of the Bible through the ages, we can still stand in it today uh, saying and, and believe that it's saying what it's supposed to be saying. So here's the acronym I'm talking about here, SHARPER. And that would come from uh, what I've quoted before in Hebrews, that the Bible is sharper than a two-edged sword. So the first S would stand for SAME. So there's 66 different books written by 40 different authors over the course of a hundred uh, sorry, a thousand, thousand years, sorry, 1,600 years, messed up my math, 1,600 years, but it's a coherent story. That's pretty crazy. 40 different authors, 1,600 years, 66 different books, coherent story, hundreds of thousands of connections throughout the text without any real contradictions. Some people say, you know, scripture contradicts itself here and there, um, but that, the, the people, when they bring that up, it's actually pretty easy to... Uh, describe that it isn't really a contradiction. There's actually this supernatural harmony that is in Scripture. So I showed you this slide last time I preached here. It is a slide showing the hundreds of thousands of connections that are in Scripture here. So you can see on the bottom here, the little white lines at the bottom are all the different books of the Bible. And then all the different colors, of which there's, uh, I think there's at least 300 and some thousand of them, are showing all the different connections between all the different books of the Bible. Now they're continually quoting each other, making reference, connecting the past stories. Uh, that doesn't just happen. Uh, that is incredible. That that's, you know, that's how amazing our scripture is. Every book is woven together supernaturally. Brings us to H, historically accurate. If you're going to make something fake, it would be pretty hard uh, to make something historically accurate. Versus all the names and places mentioned in the Bible are real. Uh, if we look at the differences that are in the gospel uh, between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's, uh, there's people that are like detectives that have studied this and studied them as if they're eyewitness accounts. And they would actually perfectly reflect what it would be like to be an eyewitness of an event. People remember certain things differently. They key in on different things. They have different perspectives. And that's what you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. They're, they're looking at the same events from slightly different perspectives. And so... Uh, very in line with what you know, eyewitness testimonies would look like. Uh, that brings us to A, and this is pretty self-explanatory, archaeologically accurate. Um, what's interesting, is I was reading the account of a guy who was an atheist, and he went to Israel and said, I'm going to disprove the Bible. And he says, I'm going to take the book of Acts, and I'm going to show it didn't really happen. And uh, he was proven wrong, because everywhere he dug, trying to follow... Uh, the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, who's a doctor, and he's known actually for being a brilliant historian. He kept finding more and more proof continually uh, that, you know, Scripture 
knew this, this, this area phenomenally. This brings us to R, reliable manuscripts. And I'm going to have a graphic here uh, come up for this one as well. So we have over 66,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And if you were to stack them on top of each other, you would get a pile four kilometers high. As you can see there, that is actually the world's tallest skyscrapers next to our stack of biblical scripture. That's four, I think they're about a kilometer high at their, their highest. God's not playing around here. We have 66,000 ancient manuscripts, and we keep finding more, by the way. Anyways, if you look at the... If you look at a book that is also about as, as ancient as the Bible and to stack up all the ancient manuscripts we have on them, it would be about four feet. So the average book that would go toe-to-toe with the Bible has a stack of four feet high of ancient manuscripts. We have a stack four kilometer high. And we have so many that it's fairly easy to discern the original and spot the spelling mistakes, the missing words, or when synonyms were used. Or uh, another problem that sometimes happens is uh, when a scribe is writing things down, they would kind of write in the margins, like you write in your own Bible, of like this, this little note, or you're, you're connecting one scripture to another. There is a few mistakes sometimes where people would, would put those in, uh, would recopy those by accident. But again, because we have so many of them, it's quite easy to spot, okay, this doesn't belong, uh, and figure out what the, the truth is. So I think if I, if I put a paragraph on the screen and I said, okay, for the next five minutes, let's all copy this down to the best of everyone's abilities. And then we gave all of those copies to somebody who wasn't in the room and said, figure out what was said on the screen. They'd be able to do it. They'd be able to work through, okay, this guy is terrible at spelling. This one's writing's a little bit illegible. Um, uh, this person, yeah, misspelled words. But anyways, they'd be able to figure that out. Uh, okay, this is what the vast, vast, vast majority look like. And again, we're not even uh, using, of course, and uh, in, 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 in thinking through the fact that, you know, Jesus... And, uh, and uh, God himself, you know, he'd be helping in this whole process. Because, again, it's his mission to make sure people get to know him, that his word's going to be truth. And, of course, if he didn't make sure his word stayed true, that would actually make him a liar because he declared it continually. So, again, if you're, if you're saying that the Bible is not truth today, you're calling God a liar because he said it would be. And, again, that's a terrible spot for you to be in. Again, thinking you know more than God. It's bad. Also, if we happen to lose all of those manuscripts, we've, if we lost them all, 66,000 of them, and all these ancient manuscripts, we lost them all, we would actually still be able to construct, uh, largely reconstruct scripture because there's so much ancient writings of early Christians or Jewish teachers that continually quote scripture. In fact, there's millions of quotations made in ancient writings that we could simply uh, take out and put back together that way. It's also worth noting that we have copies of the Old Testament that are older than Jesus. So we know that the Old Testament wasn't magically changed around to reflect Jesus or something like that. We have copies of the Old Testament older than him. We've been finding more and more of them continually. Uh, if you want to go home and look up the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's pretty interesting. We keep finding more of them actually, but in the 1940s, I believe it was 1947, a, a little shepherd boy was throwing rocks around. He threw it into a cave and he heard this shattering of pottery. He went inside and found uh, thousands of manuscripts basically stored in clay jars. And as they began to, uh, you know, all these scholars went in, they were finding all sorts of, uh, every book of the Bible was in there actually besides Esther in, in that case. Um, and uh, the accuracy of what the Bible is today versus what these copies were, which are thousands and thousands of years old, by the way, older than Jesus, uh, was astounding. The, the book of Isaiah in its entirety was in there, and it was, you know, blowing scholars' mind of, Okay, this is thousands of years old, and it's the same thing that we have today. This is wild. But again, that's God. 
he's going, he, he goes, you know, above and beyond to make sure that people can get to know him, that his word's going to be true. That brings us to P, prophetic. The Bible is full of all sorts of accurate prophetic words made hundreds of years in advance. Again, because we have copies of the Old Testament that you know, are prior to Jesus and they date back thousands of years, uh, we can see how they were right about all sorts of stuff. Um, there's a, a word in Daniel that talks about the various empires that are going to become before the Messiah comes and walks through all of that. Um, other, other prophecies as well. The prophecy of, of Tyre is a pretty interesting one if you want to look this up later. T-Y-R-E, prophecy of Tyre. That uh, gives a very accurate description of how this wicked city is going to be uh, destroyed. And it sure enough was a, a number of years later by Alexander the Great. And of course, um, all the prophetic words about Jesus he fulfilled. And he fulfilled them all. And uh, some mathematical studies are done on the probability of a singular person fulfilling all the prophecies of this. And basically, we just don't really have the numbers to account for that probability. Um, people would use the description, if you put a dinner plate on the other side of the known universe and you were to shoot an arrow at it and hoping to hit a bullseye, that would be the odds of Jesus fulfilling all of these prophetic words. It's extraordinary. Bringing us actually to E, extraordinary impact. It's impossible to deny that the scriptures have had an in extraordinary impact on the world, transforming people's lives and whole societies. My goodness, in this room alone, we could stand up and talk about how scripture has transformed our lives. All sorts of um, stories of how, you know, uh, scripture has come into societies and radically changed it. I was reading a story also this week of the islands of Fiji and of how a, uh, a traveler went there in 1847 and he found out that you could buy a human life there for seven dollars but the price of a musket and you were allowed to do anything you ever wanted to that human life you could whip them beat them and even eat them and actually that was quite common people would buy people to eat them 1847 now he came back a number of years later a few years later and he found society completely and radically transformed what happened in between when he was gone? Well, the Bible was introduced, and 1,200 churches were planted in Fiji, and all of a sudden, life had value there for the first time in their history, and had an extraordinary value at that. And there's stories like that all over the world. Of course, you know, it's just, it's incredible. Brings us to our final point here. Scripture is relevant. R. The Bible is filled with timeless insight. The different books of the Bible conveyed, you know, this, this story to a vast array of cultural contexts and situations. You know, people sometimes do, you know, you know, they'll accuse the Bible of not being relevant. We need to change it. You know, just think of who the Bible is written to. It starts off being written to a bunch of nomads, ancient nomads. And then later it's written to a kingdom. Uh, and then, you, you know, later it's written to people that are in exile, basically kidnapped, prisoners taken away from uh, home, living in a very hostile environment to the Bible. Uh, then you have people that basically that are like slaves. They're connecting to the Bible. They're finding it irrelevant. You have uh, the Bible written to a place of like over a million people. Uh, Rome, the book of Romans, written, written to Christians in Rome, a very cosmopolitan place of all sorts of different cultures. Um, you have it written to Jewish people, uh, to Greeks, it's all sorts of different people. And again, uh, just as we were, when we started with Titus, that's written to a young guy. So you're seeing the Bible, e even just using itself, it's connecting to people of all sorts of different ages, people of every generation, the rich, the poor, prisoners, slaves, male and female, and every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it still does today. Really, anyone that's telling you that the Bible is not relevant and needs to be changed, they're living in la-la land. You need to give their head a shake. 
You know, and speaking of the Bible still being relevant today, uh, actually we're going to move here into baptism. And this is a very inspiring story we have. This is a teenager from my youth group. His name is Malachi. Uh, and Malachi, we'll just get ready here. As we're, we're, we're winding you up here to be the grand finale. Now, what's interesting about Malachi is he came to my youth group numbers of months ago, and I was actually astounded by how well he knew scripture. And, I, uh, and then I began to actually know his story. And he's been through a lot. Um, we were talking about, like, mental health and kind of the trauma we've gone through. And he got up and he shared his story about the trauma he's, he's gone through, and it blew my mind. And he's still standing here today after all of that. And he's here declaring that I, I want to live, live for God and serve him. Um, I remember him sharing this story as a kid that, uh, you know, he, his family growing up kind of got into uh, drugs and crime and stuff. And as a little kid, he uh, had to, was led to do all sorts of crime. And I remember him telling this traumatic story of the SWAT team basically breaking into his hotel room and taking his parents away. And being addicted to drugs at a very young age. And he's, uh, there's more to the story as well, but luckily God's hand is on his life and because and, God's desire is to know him. God wants him as part of his family. And it began a restoration process as then he was um, put with, with other family and he got to know who God is and get introduced to scripture. And then now he's a kid at my youth group that's super passionate for God. Uh, probably one of my, I refer to him as one of my top students. And I think of everything he's gone through, and I think, wow, God is real. Because of the transformation that's gone on in his life. So I'm very excited that he's uh, going to be baptized here. I think he's just getting changed. And but anyways, I just want to end with some prayer here as we go into this. Um, some of you might not really be aware of the battle that's going on that I'm talking about here, progressive Christianity. You might not be online as much as other people, but it's fierce. It's bad. Uh, if you were simply just to Google evangelical, one of the first things that's going to come up probably is critiques of it and people basically treating us like we're supervillains or something. And it, uh, it's bad. But again, uh, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This isn't the first battle we faced, my goodness. Won't be the last. And I serve a God that has a perfect record. It's never lost. And so I have no problem. Even if it makes me stand out and look weird, I'm going to stick with God. Actually, this conviction that I had uh, years ago when I was even contemplating being a youth pastor was to come. And when I came here, I, I named the youth group Counterculture. Named it after Romans 12, too. That we're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be instead transformed by the, the renewing of our mind. That God would renew our mind as, as he saved us. And it would be a continual process. And the second half of that verse says, then you will know God's will for your life, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. That is my desire for this next generation. They might live in a world you didn't live in. They might live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. It seems to be getting kind of bad out there. But Christianity has stood the test of time in all sorts of different circumstances. And in fact, what is beautifully ironic is that when the heat is turned on, Christianity doesn't fade away, it stands up and it roars. And we have a beautiful history in Christianity that even when under oppression, even when living in, in, a, in a country that is against Christianity, Christianity can still flourish. In fact, today one of the biggest places of Christianity is China, where the, it's illegal to be a Christian. And I just kind of laugh at that and saying, God is so big. Look at the curveball thrown there, but here he stands 
uh, you know, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Or Indonesia, the biggest Muslim country in the world, Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Even getting into North, North Korea and all sorts of places in the Arabic world. It's blown up in Africa and South America right now. And evangelicalism is still technically growing in North America and Europe. And especially charismatic Christianity, which is a version of that, which would be our version, uh, Pentecostal denominations, we are also uh, growing quite substantially, leading, leading the world in it, actually. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to end in, in, in prayer here. And I just want you to be filled with faith. Some of you might be faced with some difficulties. Even people in your church, or sorry, people in your family that are kind of buying into some of these lies that are being shed, uh, shared around, or maybe they're, the heat's really on their, fa- their faith and they're kind of uh, faltering underneath it. We're going to be praying for that. And I believe that, again, God can make a way where there seems to be in a way. Let Malachi be a reminder to you that that's a pretty scary situation that he was in. Uh, quite, quite the mess. But God can show up in the middle of that. He can show up in the middle of your situation too. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. So let's just end in prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you that your word is astounding. That the more we read it, the more we are... Uh, encouraged the more that we look at you and and towards you and say, God, you are amazing. God, we thank you that you put all this this effort in throughout thousands of years to make sure that we have an accurate rendition um, of your words today, that scholars can have an extreme confidence uh, in your your words today, and so we can still get to know you, God, uh, the same God that walked the earth as Jesus 2,000 years ago. We can get to know you. We can have a relationship with you. You can transform our lives. You can make us a new creation. You can wipe us clean from sin. You can give us that fresh start. And, and you can lead us into a relationship with you that is, is going to culminate in being with you forever in heaven. And God, I just pray for those people uh, in this church even right now that are struggling with questions. Can I really believe the Bible is the word of God? And they're struggling with that pressure of culture that is seemingly opposing uh, the church. And God, I just pray that you're going to strengthen their spiritual muscles. You're going to strengthen their sense of identity. And so they're going to be able to stand and fight. And they're going to say, you know what? Even if it means I'm standing alone, I'm going to stand with the Lord. I'm going to stand on this historic Christianity. And God, I pray that you would use people in this church, people hearing this messages online to proclaim your truth, to proclaim a confidence in Scripture. And God, I just pray that you'd help people remember what's been taught today. Help them remember that, ac- that acronym sharper. They'd be able to give an, uh, kind of a defense of scripture. And that would help lead people to you because that is your heart. And God, I pray for those that have um, had you misre- misrepresented in lots of different ways. There's people in this church that have had you misrepresented. People outside this church, maybe seen this online, that have had you misrepresented. God, I'm praying for the real thing. I'm praying they're going to get to know you and who you really are. And know that you're good and you're pleasing and you're perfect. And you're the best friend that they could ever have. In your name we pray, amen.